Good evening and welcome to Amplify, telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lengwin, hoping that you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others, as was the case with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whose, whose day we celebrate, we recognize uh, the contributions he has made to our country and, and to the world. I would like to um, begin a program with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination, an introduction to our guest and our topic for the evening. As the disciples sat around a fire trying to warm and comfort their tired and aching bodies, it was Andrew who said, Master, I've only been with you for a few weeks. My father and his father asked me to come to you to learn as much as I can, to seek wisdom and understanding. And so I ask you, Master, how do we know what the Father wants us to do in life? There was silence among the other men as they waited to hear Jesus' response. It seemed like a long time before Jesus began to answer and said, Andrew, when you walk, do you always see your shadow? The men just looked at one another, and Andrew could not help smiling when he answered, No, Master, one does not always see one's shadow. Jesus said in response, You are right. Does man always thirst? No, and replied. Does man always feel strong and have no need to rest? I do not understand what you are trying to teach me, Master. Jesus said, life has many mysteries. We must try to follow the rules of the Father, and we must have faith, especially if we want to understand the Father's will. Each man and woman have been given talents, spiritual gifts, which they must use as best as possible. Each man and woman will be judged on how well they have done that. Each man and woman has been made in the image of and likeness of the Father. When a child is born, there is rejoicing. When that child has lived its life and dies, there is sadness. And yet many times, there is a form of relief in knowing that the soul will return home. Does man fully understand the mysteries of the Father and all that he wants? No, Andrew, not until... He has returned home. A story of faith and imagination. Our guest this evening writes in his latest book titled Seeking God with St. John Henry Newman. And this is the introduction of the book. Life is fleeting. The biblical authors warn us as much. The letter of James, for example, summarizes the human condition in particularly stark terms. Quote, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Close quote. The psalmist drives this same point home, comparing mortals to the flowers in the field. They flourish for a time, but then the wind passes over them and they are gone, never to be known again. Time marches steadily onward. 
And if we are not careful, we can reach the end of our days to find that we have wasted our time pursuing meaningless things. We all want our lives to matter, to have some sort of lasting significance. But this can prove elusive even for those who have the best of intentions. Think back, for example, on the past 10 to 15 years of your life. If you're anything like me, there are many things that, with the wisdom you have now, you would have done differently. Yet, here you are today, your past frozen, as it were, living with the consequences of the decisions that have brought you to this point. I've heard more than one older acquaintance remind that, quote, youth is wasted on the young, close quote. For whatever reason, as human beings, we don't seem to realize how precious time is until it's gone. But once time has slipped through our hands, there is no recovering it. Life can be lived only forward. There are no mulligans. I think our guest this evening, the author of of these words, is Dr. Ryan Butmar, Ph.D. He was the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies not so long ago here in Pittsburgh. He is now the academic dean of Mercy College of Health Sciences in Des Moines, Iowa, where he lives with his wife, Rachel, and their seven children. Dr. Marr, welcome to Amplify. Thank you so much for having me on, Father. It's really a blessing and a joy. So who takes care of the seven children while you're talking to me for two hours? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. We got a decent snow here in Des Moines last week. So oh, you the did. The oldest four are out sledding, but the oh, youngest wonderful. three are with Grandma right now. So Yeah, we had three inches yesterday. Supposed to get one to three again. Um, oh, wow. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk a little bit about that, that very point. Is there a relationship between—well, let me say this first of all— that um, you write that this book is an invitation to receive spiritual direction from St. John Henry Newman. But you're the, you're the spiritual director in writing this book. It's amazing to me how this, the spirit of this man, uh, his knowledge, uh, is something that, uh, that pervades your life. And so you were the director of the National Institute for Newman Society, uh, here in or studies here in Pittsburgh, is there a relationship between your previous mission to promote knowledge of the life, work, and influence of St. John Henry Newman and your new position? I would think that you're going to carry his legacy with you in whatever you do. Well, I, I would say that's true, Father. And Newman, throughout his entire life, he was really concerned about education. And he wanted the Christian faithful, you know, not to just imbibe the truths of the faith without thinking of them critically. Now, we've all been given different gifts. You know, not yes. every one of us is a scholar or intellectual, but Newman really thought each Catholic, you know, with the capacity they've given, should try to move more deeply into the mysteries of the faith. So as a dean now at a college, you know, a lot of what Newman wrote about, say, in the idea of a university remains a real inspiration for me. I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, for those who are not familiar with uh, St. Uh, John Henry Newman, give us just a thumb note sketch of how uh, it's possible f or how he can be a, a spiritual guide on our path to holiness. Well, what I would say briefly is that 
I see Newman really as someone who yearned for the truth. And, you know, on the marker that he chose for not his gravestone, but as a memorial marker when he died in the oratory, he, he chose this phrase, out of, out of shadows into the truth. And you see that yearning for the truth in every stage of his life. And the reason I say that, Father, is that as he, as he sought to know God more, he did become convicted that the fullness of the faith was in the Catholic Church. He was, at the time, a prominent Anglican minister, and he sacrificed a great deal, career prospects, friends. You know, really, at the time, uh, in England, Catholicism was seen as sort of un-English, and so he gave up a great deal and came under some aspersion, but he had to follow his conscience on that occasion. And so I think um, for any of, any of us who, you know, feel called by God, and see our lives as, in many ways, a journey to God. You know, Newman, um, the convictions that he had about the truth, but also his deep study of the scriptures and the rich treasures of the faith, and the way that he took those treasures and kind of rearticulated them for the modern world, there's, there's just so much there that we can take away from his writings. Yeah, you point out that a recurring theme is in his sermons is the urgency in setting aside our selfish desires in order to do God's will. And, and uh, he notes that most of us have an underlying lukewarmness when it comes to the things of God, that there's an apathy or um, a lack of attention to spiritual realities. With that in mind, how do you suggest that we read this book? Um, uh, one point, of course, is it's, it's essential that, that we engage in the practice of prayer. Yes. Uh, so part of the inspiration for writing this book was that Newman wrote so much. He's one of those figures in the faith, like St. Augustine or a Thomas Aquinas, where you're kind of flabbergasted. So if those, you know, those listening in Pittsburgh, if you go to the National Institute for Newman Studies, you know, there's, there's like one whole floor of the library that's dedicated to his works. And so I kind of wanted to mine those books and say, like, what are some of the really key pillars of Newman's thought that I could maybe make more accessible to readers today who want that introduction but don't know where to jump in. And so my book is really organized around these different themes. You know, you mentioned prayer. There is a chapter on uh, preparing for a good death. Um, I I have one on um, um, salvation and and justification and those questions. And I I do feel, Father, like I tried to write the book where those chapters could even serve as standalone. So say someone maybe, you know, isn't in a place where they're ready to read about the doctrine of justification. But I think as Christians, we're all concerned about prayer. You know, Newman says, prayer is the wings of the soul. Like, we can't hope to draw near to God uh, unless we, you know, our lives are bathed in prayer. And so, you know, I hope a chapter like that one has uh, truths and insights that pretty much all believers could grab a hold of. Yeah, another chapter is fix, fixing our eyes on on Jesus uh, in the world we live in today that seems to become more and more difficult. But going back to the concept of prayer, um, he said that uh, prayer is to the spiritual life what the beating of the heart is to the life of the body. Prayer is to the spiritual life what the beating of the heart is to the life of the body. And so uh, that, that moves us to understanding that we must be persons of prayer, shouldn't we? Yeah, and 
you know, in writing a book like this one, I'm always, as I'm, as I'm mining Newman's works, it's convicting for myself. So when I read that quote by Newman, you know, prayers to the spiritual life where the beating of the heart is to the body, I was reminded, Father, just convicted by how I might organize my own day. You know, I roll out mm-hmm. of bed, maybe check my smartphone pretty soon. The kids want breakfast. I'm off to work. And the concerns of the day by 9.30 a.m. can completely consume me. And Newman's saying, look, this is, this is essential. Like, we can't, prayer can't be an afterthought. So he has some real practical advice for his, his readers, too, where he says, set aside the best part of your day for God. And for some of us, that might be first thing in the morning. For others, maybe at night is where we feel most relaxed and ready to hear God's voice. But for Newman, it was essential, I think, that we carve out that space, that it's not something where we say, I'll get to prayer when the occasion allows for it. It has to be something planned for and committed to because it's absolutely vital. And the, and the message uh, of from him is as true today as it was then when he writes that God truly does use the weak things of this world to shame the strong because we tend to view public life through the lens of coercive power. We're seeing that right now. The majority of the human race, he wrote, can be moved only by the threat of punishment or the loss of privilege. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Father. One personal story from Newman's life that really has stuck with me is that when he prepared for his final exams during college, he prayed that if they might, you know, like if success academically might be a source of pride to him, that God would permit him to fail the exams. Now, for some of us, that might be, you know, that might sound kind of intense, depending on how much you've you've spent on your college degree or whatnot. But I think the basic gist of it still holds true. Newman had a strong sense that um, everything that came his way in life, even the difficulties and the struggles, there was a purpose to it. And we could understand that in facile terms. You know, of course, God doesn't will or desire us to be sick or distraught or whatnot. But there are these challenges in life, and Newman tried to understand those as an opportunity to say, what kind of person is God creating me to be? And I appreciate the fact, Father, that you point out in our time in so many ways, whether that's um, in the sports world, certainly politically it's been an issue in recent years, but so much is about ambition and coercion. And Newman, I I think like St. Therese of Lisieux, was asking the faithful to reconsider the little way and, and, and the fact that if we'll humble ourselves, God will raise us up and God can use um, the weak things of the world in really profound, powerful ways that we we don't automatically see at the beginning of the process. And when we we experience the difficulties the Church is uh, experiencing, uh, even at this time, uh, he points out that God has guided the Church, you write, this far amid many ferocious storms, and we can trust that God will continue to guide her in years to come, pointing out that can that it can still be difficult to live as a member of the body of Christ. And besides his sense that God was ultimately, ultimately in control, he was convinced that Christianity was inherently a social religion. And the and you write uh, again about the purpose of this book is to, quote, zero in on Newman's life 
of heroic virtue in order to glean insights that might aid our journey to God. And that's as individuals, but also as a church and even smaller groups than that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I tried to highlight there in that introduction the fact that Newman did face struggles as um, being precisely a member of the body of Christ. I don't recommend it, but I mean, you can jump online today, or we, you know, we used to say open the newspaper and hear news of leaders in the church or experiences in the church that are difficult to wrap your mind around. And, and Newman walked through some of those. I mean, we don't have to get in the weeds this evening, but the first Vatican Council was a real challenge to him spiritually because he thought there were leaders in the church that were pushing for a decision or a way of speaking the truth that he thought was a little imprudent. But Newman, throughout that time, as he wrestled with that question internally, he continued to trust that God was guiding the bark of Peter, as we might say. And as others wrote him and said, you know, Father Newman, I don't know what to make of this or that, he would say, have a little faith, you know, have a little patience. Pius IX is not the last pope. This is likely right. not the last council. You know, God has a plan here, and we have to trust that um, the Church has been provided for our salvation. It's not our job to save the Church, and that the graces of the sacraments remain there despite some of the unfortunate or scandalous things you might see taking place. Um, after you talk about his life, some of the highlights of his his life, you begin with the uh, the three stages of the spiritual life, classically the purgative, illuminative, and unitive ways, and, and there's so much. We could spend the whole program on just this and not get beyond uh, page 54, uh, but when he when he's speaking about the purgative, he says we must be purged of our sinful desires and disordered attachments before we can see God as he truly is, that we must ask ourselves if we are ready to turn our lives over completely to God. And we have many excuses why we wouldn't want to do that. But he says it all begins with very small measures that we should focus on ordinary duties, that we should not look for miraculous signs and wonders but the circumstances life has brought our way. And so he targets matters of life that all of us must confront and that there is redemptive uh, suffering. What I'm doing here is I'm just reading this out to our first break before I <laughs> have you, uh, have you, uh, I had cut you off. And his daily, da- his daily day of self-denial began as, as soon as he awakened. And he believes that, one of the greatest danger of our time is possessing temporal advantages, those very things that we look for and want, and that there is a great danger in riches, and that the single likeliest source of corruption is surrounding ourselves with comfort. So having said that, we're going to Yes, we're going to—oh, we still have the one minute. He's, he's reminding me. I always want to go out earlier. I, 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 before we, we get further down the line there, um, there is also the, the illuminative and unitive way, and we'll allow people to look into those, and, and maybe whenever we come back, we can ask you just to give a, a, a sentence or two of those in terms of what that means as we're, we're attempting— as I say, we read this book with you. You become our spiritual director. Uh, he becomes our spiritual director through you, I guess, is, is the way in which I should say it. 
And there's so much that applies to today and our spiritual life because we we need, if we are to face the problems that we have to overcome today, it's going to be by drawing closer uh, to God and the wisdom that is shared, that he has shared with someone like uh, John St. John Henry Newman. So we'll be back to speak with Dr. Ryan Marr about his book, Seeking God. Welcome back to uh, Amplify, where our guest is Dr. Ryan Bud Marr, Ph.D. He formerly was the director of the National Institute for Newman's Studies here in uh, Pittsburgh. He is now the academic dean of Mercy College of Health Sciences in Des Moines, Iowa, where he lives with his wife, Rachel, and their seven children. He's written a book um, while he was still here, Seeking God with St. John uh, Newman. Um, uh, Dr. Marr, I guess you can tell that I like your book, Uh, in so many ways. And when you really like a book, it's like you feel you have to say something about everything, which you, which you just can't do. So say a little bit, just a little bit, so we can move on about, uh, as, you, as you write in your book about this three stages of the spiritual life, I, I said a lot about uh, the, the, the first stage, the purgative, but tell us a little bit about the illuminative and unitive ways. Well, uh, yeah, the you you did have some good thoughts on the purgative way there, Father. And as you um, as Christians, as we're slowly released from or purged of desires, sometimes that might not even be bad in and of themselves, but may be disordered in such a way that they're getting in the way of knowing and loving God. As 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 we let go of those things, we move into what Newman calls the illuminative way. And this isn't a perfect three-step process. And what I mean by that is it's not like you complete the purgative way and then, you know, then you go to the illuminative way. And then once you're done with that, um, that you th- then and only then do you reach the unitive way. These are taking place sometimes simultaneously, but the illuminative way really gets to the fact that uh, as Catholics, you know, one of the great gifts that God gives us is, the grace that's available in the sacraments. And of course, the Eucharist is, as the Second Vatican Council said, the source and summit of the Christian life, meaning our entire lives flow from it and then return back to it. And mm-hmm. and Newman had a real love for the liturgy. He says at one point, you know, that he could almost spend an entire day, you know, in the movements of the Mass. It was so moving and beautiful to him. And, you know, it's good for us to recall, it's not that at every liturgy we go to, we're going to hear trumpets blaring and angels singing. But if we do recognize, you know, what the Church teaches about that experience, we do, as, as, we, as we confess at Mass, join our voices with angels and archangels. And so it's really mm-hmm. within that context, united with other baptized believers, you know, directed to um, God, who is our ultimate destiny, <laughs> that we're given a glimpse just a glimpse of what our eternal experience will be like. And I feel like I've been talking for a few minutes here, Father. I want to let you ask the next question. But that, that's really where you start to move towards sure. the unitive way, where our telos, our end point, is union with God. And it's, it's really beautiful in Scripture that that experience is called 
a wedding feast. So, you know, this is not like a, a boring church service that we have to sit through, but it's it's a festive celebration. And there's probably no way in human words that we can capture what heaven will exactly be like. Mm-hmm. But if we begin to think of it as this joyous celebration, which the Mass points to, I think, you know, that is that can be a source of consolation along the road. A couple of things I'll just I'll just pick out. I have a lot of underlines here. Um, in the illuminative way you write, God is not an object for study. As if we could somehow know God by memorizing a list of facts about him. Rather, God is a loving communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whom we can truly know only through a mutual exchange of love, that is, by entering into a covenant relationship with him. Coming to know God is far more like entering into a marital covenant than like studying for an exam. And then if I were, and, uh, and uh, God alone is the happiness of our souls is, is what uh, St. John Newman uh, teaches us in the unitive way. Uh, the, one, the one point that I, that I would make is because it's something that I've been thinking about a whole lot. And it's, you write, in the battleground of the spiritual life, one of Satan's preferred tactics is to remind us of our history, seeking to convince us that our sins make us unworthy to be called children of God. We certainly don't want that to happen, do we? No, I think, you know, this gets back to something that you were sort of hinting at before the break about, uh, I I believe the word desire was used, or I used that in the book. Yes. I think sometimes the way that we talk about the faith, we can give the mistaken impression that our desires are bad. You know, I, I've heard someone jokingly say, you can get the impression that the Christian life is simply don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. And so Christianity becomes sort of like not doing certain things. When really, um, when we understand God not only as our Savior, but as Creator, you know, the gifts that we're given, um, food, drink, relationship, these are all good things, and they're all meant to point us uh, to God. And I think that can reorient the way that we think about things. And that's where I would talk about what you were saying with um, this covenant relationship. You know, for me, um, it's really consoling to, re- to be reminded of the fact that, you know, God is, um, as one writer said, like a mad lover of his creation and of persons. And so we're called into this covenant relationship. And sin, in that sense, is not so much like crossing over an arbitrary line, but it's, it's actually choosing to become less personal, less who we were made to be. And I think thinking about the faith in those terms can really give us a new perspective on, you know, again, why, why, why sin is not sort of like a delicatessen, you know, or something that's taken away, taken away from us, but it actually moves us further away from the happiness we've been called to experience. You write a chapter titled... Uh, learning the new language of Christ. And you write that the process of coming to know and love God involves a great deal of joy, but it's not easy. And the Newman compares the process of sanctification to language acquisition. It requires time and effort, doesn't it? 
Yeah, if you've ever tried to learn a new language, it's not a job in a day. It takes serious study. And really the best way to do that is to immerse yourself in the culture that speaks that language and to really like step into that other world. Um, you know, Newman says at different places that one of the toughest things about true religion is regularity. It's easy to be religious and fits and starts, you know, maybe at Christmas time or Easter or when the emotions are there. But what's the true test is that daily walk, step by step, learning um, the new language of Christ. And so when St. John Henry Newman, when he, um, when he moved to the place where he would offer practical advice on, you know, how to, how to grow in holiness, he was really brass tacks about things, Father. He didn't, he didn't say aim for martyrdom from square one, but, you know, turn your eyes away from society, avoid praise, curb your tongue, uh, practice a little bit of fasting to the extent that you're able. All of these things are, rel you know, in a certain sense, they're small steps. But just as uh, water over time can um, erode land to the point that the Grand Canyon is created, each of these small steps, uh, it, it's, you know, each one of those helps us to extinguish our selfish desire and become more open slowly and slowly to the will of God. And um, you point out, you write that, that um, ours is a religion of practice, not sentiment, and that there are four points that stand out in a self-emptying life. One, the way of self-denial that Christ calls us to demands singularity of purpose. Two, at the heart of discipleship is faithfulness in the ordinary duties of life. Three, life in Christ is a marathon, not a sprint. And four, the life we live in Christ ought to be characterized by joy. Amplify a little bit on whatever you'd, you would like to right there. Well, I think that second point is one that's really stuck with me, that the heart of discipleship is faithfulness in the ordinary duties of life. And I had a wonderful spiritual director several years ago, and I was struggling with a couple of things. And I kind of, in this conversation with him, I gave the impression that if I could just be like a monk, everything would be okay because yeah. I'd be set apart from the world. And, you know, I wouldn't have all these temptations that I'm facing on a daily basis. And he helpfully pointed out to me that, you know, God had called me in as providence to the vocation of being a husband and a father. And it was precisely that life with the shape that it has by which I would be sanctified or made into the person who God intended me to be. And that, that advice in the context of spiritual direction has, has always stuck with me. There are times, you know, where it may be 2 a.m. and I have to teach the next day or, you know, like I've set aside a Saturday to work on, on a manuscript, and I think, like, why am I here in the middle of the night changing this diaper? And yeah. I, I'm reminded that, you know, that in that moment, that's exactly the place that God's called me to be. You know, so often it's just human nature, I think, Father, to flee from things that we consider menial or below us or burdensome. But uh, each person that we meet along the way are the various tasks this you know, difficult supervisor, supervisor who doesn't seem to understand all that's on my plate. 
you know, all of those are opportunities to conform ourselves to Christ. And that's not to say God might not call us to very heroic things, but if we're not faithful with those small tasks and those small burdens, we'll in no way be prepared to make a great sacrifice on behalf of the kingdom. Um, he teaches that uh, the pursuit of holiness has many challenges, as you've said, and um, there is self-denial that we need to practice. And he compares the process of sanctification to language acquisition, as we said, that requires time and effort. Then the the fourth point here is the life we live in Christ ought to be characterized by joy. How is it that we are called to such discipline and and we still can live with a sense of joy. Yeah, I love it how Newman says, like, none of this means for a moment that Christians have an excuse to lack joy. Uh, he, he sort of memorably puts it, that gloom is no Christian temper. And I think here, for me, Father, a helpful reminder is the distinction between happiness as sort of an emotion or a surface quality and deep and lasting joy. And undoubtedly, different stages of life require different dispositions. You know, if um, if a close friend has just lost their parent, you don't want to be happy clappy. You know, that's not what's called for in those circumstances. But to know Christ and to know um, the greatness to which God has called us to as his children, that can provide a joy and a source of contentment that pervade that transcends mm-hmm. um, the circumstances of life, uh, because well, you know, to live long enough is to experience deep grief, deep suffering, you know, real losses. Uh, we don't have to we don't have to paint a happy face each morning, but I think Newman, maybe even because Father, sometimes he knew he could be sort of a heavy-handed preacher. He comes back to this point: gloom is no Christian temper, therefore. Let us seek the grace of a cheerful heart and even temper, sweetness, gentleness. And all of these things, I think, will make what we have to say about um, Jesus more compelling to those who hear it. And certainly he recognized from his own life that one of the major hurdles in the journey toward God is what he called a divided heart. And he himself struggled with distraction, didn't he? Yeah, you know, I think Newman, more than anything, he, he really did enjoy the intellectual life. He loved reading the great books and, and being a, a teacher, you know, a fellow at Oxford, to the point that it's interesting, Father, because a year ago, you know, the Church, as we say, raised Newman to the altars, and we now, you know, we, we, we firmly believe that he's a, a saint before the throne of God in heaven. But Newman in his own lifetime, you know, maybe with the humility that's proper to a saint, he said saints are not normally bookish people. You know, they don't frequent libraries or write novels. And so, you know, he said he would be happy if he made it to heaven and his job was to to blacken or polish St. Philip Neri's shoes. Um, and so Newman, he, he did have some of those distractions. And I think if it was up to him, he maybe would have loved to just spend most of his day in his study or in the classroom. But um, as we've been saying, he knew that as a priest and 
and then as rector of the oratory for this religious community, that there were other tasks that God was placing before him. And so when you dig into the details of his journals and of his letters, we know that Newman was, Newman was involved in various charitable activities, um, certainly a lot of spiritual counsel that he was offering to his parishioners. And um, he came to see those things, uh, again, as an opportunity to set aside his own selfish desires, maybe how he would have just completely structured his own day and time, and to offer that you know, back to God. And uh, he knew that um, a transformation was necessary from our old self into a new self. He immersed, immersed himself, you write, in the theology of the, of the church fathers. And uh, he, you write, one of the difficulties in talking about the spiritual life is the tension between our responsibility to respond to God's call and the reality that we are able to bear fruit only by abiding in Christ. And you continue a little later, in the working out of salvation, the initiative always starts with God's side. God does not love us because we first move toward him. Rather, quote, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us from Romans. Mysteriously, you write then, God's Word upholds both of these ideas simultaneously. God's grace makes possible our repentance, while human freedom means that we must cooperate with the grace that is made available to us. And so um, you're telling us, you're, you're teaching us, he's teaching us that our salvation is a free gift of God and not something attained by by our personal efforts, but at the same time, we have been created uh, to do good works because God is at work within us. Yeah, this is one of those perennial theological questions. A lot of ink has been spilled on this topic, but this question of if salvation is a free gift that's offered by God, you know, apart from anything that we might have done, and yet Scripture contains all of these commands. And St. Paul, for instance, says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, how do we make sense of these two ideas which stand in apparent tension? And I think the temptation, Father, has always been to sort of just resolve the tension, and Newman refuses to do so. He upholds both at the same time. He wants to completely affirm that, as St. Paul writes, it's grace that we have been saved through faith. You know, not of works, so that no one should boast, but not slacken the urgency of that call to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And yet that, you know, even in that verse, it's followed up that, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I think if, I mean, if we are forced to choose, <laughs> the emphasis falls on God's side, because without God's movement towards us, we would be lost. Uh, and in that sense, I don't think there's any reason to fret over our salvation. If we've been baptized and then later confirmed, we've been marked with the cross of Christ, and, you know, we truly are children of God, and so we should rest in that promise. But resting is different than apathy, and apathy would lead you to a place where you say, well, it's all taken care of. God's done the work. I don't have to do anything more. 
And that's maybe where we want to, want to be reminded that God has called us to do works. And it's not something that, uh, like, if we do enough of them, we'll, you know, we'll be granted admittance into the pearly gates. But it is something that's integral to the life of faith and to ask God, in what ways can I offer my time, my energy, and my talents to the work that you want to do in the world? And so you write, if I amplify on that, that too often we we approach spiritual growth in the same way we approach dieting and exercise, much like people are uh, doing at the beginning of, the, of this new year, perhaps uh, even trying to deepen and renew their spiritual life. But uh, the point is, you're making is that we must be completely reliant on God. Yeah, I, when I was writing that section of the book, I was a little concerned that I might cause some undue anxiety on the part of readers who would say, well, in a sense, like, have I done enough? What does it mean to rest in God's grace? And that's really where I would point us back to the sacraments. The sacraments are not boxes that we check off like a checklist, but it, they're the means by which God conveys His life to us. So, you know, at Holy Communion, we receive the body and blood of Christ, and that conveys, you know, true spiritual power. I mean, that's sacramental grace is really God conveying the means to us to to live the life that we're called to live. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I we we talk about as human beings familiarity. Uh, breeds contempt. And, you know, maybe this year at the start of a new year, this can be an opportunity to say, Lord, have I become too familiar with things that are in reality, you know, mind-boggling gifts? Now's the time. Hold hold that thought while we take this break, okay? 